Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Tasha Mascarenas, and joining me is senior TechCrunch reporter on fintech, prop tech, Latin America, and everything in between, Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Natasha? I'm good. I'm counting down the days. I know I bring this up every episode, but counting down the days so I can hug you and and talk to you at work and stuff like that, but mostly just to hug you. I can't wait. I can't wait. It'll be Three so more fun. weeks. I know. Oh my God. And Rebecca Skutak, welcome back to Equity. I'm not even going to act like people don't know who you are and make you do a fun fact this time. No, always happy to be here. How was Paris? You, you've been traveling internationally more than either of us have over the past month. So tell us kind of one thing from the trip. One thing that we did that I really loved is we took a pastry making class. Mm-hmm. So we learned how to make all these different types of pastries from like a like a butter-based dough yeah. so croissants and sort of that kind of stuff which was super fun and the other couples in the class were super quirky and we just thought it was like the funnest thing I love that that sounds like a blast I feel like cooking classes when you're traveling can be this like yeah you meet really quirky people I don't know I feel like in SF it's kind of boring but in in Italy it was like I met this family that was like kind of all fighting with each other it was amazing <laughs> it was like no I met a 35 year old woman who had never cracked an egg before Oh. And the instructor was like, well, then try it now. And she was like, I'm not comfortable doing that. And I was like, oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's oh, my God. That is actually hilarious. And I, I'm excited for you to throw us a Pilates class in Disrupt in a few weeks, which I've, I've been pressuring you not so subtly to do. <laughs> You say that now. You won't be excited as it's happening. I will not be. I know it. But obviously, my my shameless plug, everyone should use code equity for disrupt tickets. It'll be fun. I don't know if you guys are invited to Becca's Pilates class, but the rest of the show is going to be amazing. But let's talk about what we're going to get into today. For us three, Alex is out, but we're going to have lots of fun. We're going to talk about three deals of the week, Scout, Hop, Skip, Drive, and Hustle Fund. Then we're going to get into a story about layoffs, but this time really focusing on the human cost, which I'm really happy we get to spend a minute on. Then we're going to talk about some repercussions of the Adobe Figma deal and what it tells us about the M&A environment. And we'll end with venture deal pace in Q4 and talk about the fact that we're all really busy right now suddenly again. But Marianne, let's start with talking about three letters I have not said in a while, which is IPO. I know. Well, this this morning, um, I wrote about Trip Actions reportedly falling to go public at a $12 billion valuation. Uh, this wasn't a complete shock because Katie Roof had kind of scooped um, in early August that this As was going to happen. <laughs> yes, she does. But still, a $12 billion valuation. Um, after the company, sorry, was valued at $7.25 billion last October. In this environment, even going public at all, I mean, I think it kind of blew all of us away. It had been a minute. I know that the TC Plus team is also working on more stuff about what this means, but were you at all shocked? I know you've covered them a bit and their move into expense management. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's it's an interesting story because at the beginning of the pandemic, because they were focused on travel spend management for yeah. companies, obviously at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone stopped traveling. So their revenue literally dropped to zero. So they did a really smart job and focusing on their new liquid product, which is more of a general expense management or spend management offering. And apparently that's doing very, very well. So now they're competing with the likes of Brex and Ramp and uh, believe it's a growing part of their business, which may have led to, to this move. All right. Well, there we go. We'll talk about another IPO candidate in a few, but I'm going to stick with you, Marianne, and we're going to talk about Scout because it has to do with other people managing their spend, but 
but in a more maybe like retail investory way. Yeah. So I wrote about this fairly new company called Scout. I was impressed with uh, the founder, Michael Haddix Jr. For a few reasons, he just seemed really, really passionate about wanting to start a company to help Gen Zers and others invest, but but not blindly. Okay. So, you know, um, there are, there have been, there's been a lot of talk about a lot of the retail investing apps are focused on transactions, not really too worried about educating the users. So this Scout app really wants to do the opposite and they're trying to make it fun. So they've bucketed funds into different themes like uh, sports, electric vehicles, food and beverage. And, and like the names of them are actually really, really, really cute. One was like, I love college. And that's the one about food and beverage sector. One is love of the game. That's the video games. Um, so glamorous apparel and luxury goods, that kind of thing. So really clever and smart. I hadn't heard of anything quite like it. He teamed up with his co-founder, Cindy Zing Mm -hmm. at On Deck. They were fellows there. And so they just raised $2.6 million in seed funding. They're trying to, their go-to-market strategy is to like hit college campuses, get in with athletic teams, get the athletes kind of to be their ambassadors and um, other pro athletes to like, put out videos and get on social mm-hmm. media, really appealing to this crowd in a way that, that they'll listen. Um, and so I, I think it's fascinating. He himself played basketball in college. His father was an NFL running back. Because they're not focused on transactions, they have a very low barrier to entry. Okay. Users can start with a dollar a month subscription. And so they really just want to get people in and feel comfortable. And then once they have over $1,000 um, in assets under management, the company will charge 1% fee. So... Anyway, I'll be quiet now. What do you guys think of this company? I definitely like the first thing I thought of is it's great mission alignment that they're not charging per transaction. Because thinking if they were like, oh, we want to come from the education angle. And then they're like, oh, but we make money. Like the more people trade, I would be kind of a little skeptical about that mission. But the fact that it's very so based on wanting people to get involved and just learn more about it before they start doing it. I think that was really smart business decision, in my opinion, at least. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think like Robinhood, for example, has had its fair share of controversy and questioning around if it does a good enough job of educating users on the weight of their transactions or investments. And if there's this age old debate on if there's enough barriers to entry that are healthy and stop someone from making a mistake. So when I see something like Scout I I don't know if they've answered all those questions and I'm curious, Marianne, if they talked about that, but I did like that it was rooted in education because that to me at least calms down some things, some worries. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, Michael was saying that he really, he really wanted the users to understand what was happening. Like if, if their stock all of a sudden went down, they wanted to explain like what was going on in the, the macro environment that caused that to happen. So they were not just sitting there clueless and wondering what the hell just happened, you know? And, and they're, they're really wanting them to like be in this for the long term, not just get in, trade and leave, you know, really help them understand what's happening, why it's happening. And I, and I think. I think it's a really admirable mission and I really could feel his authenticity. You know, we've talked about this before. You can really, you can kind of feel when a founder just really is passionate about something genuinely like, and I got that impression from him. So I'm really curious to see how this company grows over time and and hopefully I'll be hearing back from them soon to get an update. I wanted to 
I guess ask one last question and then we can jump into the next one, literally, because <laughs> of the name. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's kind of like a basic fintech question, but I'm a little worried that I don't entirely understand how they're avoiding charging for transactions. Like, do you feel like it's just a customer acquisition tool or is this mm-hmm. like truly something you think will stick with them over time? Because Becca, I know that's what stood out to you about it too. So I, I was just like, not sure how that really worked. Yeah. I mean, I, I too was a little skeptical because I thought, wow, a dollar a month is like really inexpensive, you know, yeah. it's, and how are you going to make money that way? But his real his real um, expectation and hope is that these users will grow comfortable and be uh, investing more over time so that they will start, their assets under management will increase and be over $1,000. At that point, they can start taking a 1% fee. Um, so that that's what I think that and and so they pre- seem pretty emphatic about not wanting to go the transaction charging per transaction route. I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, let's repeat my attempt at a lame transition and jump into <laughs> Becca year round of the week hop skip drive, a throwback some would say. Definitely. Yeah, so hop skip drive is a company that operates in the kids transportation space. They closed the deal a few weeks ago. And what stood out to me about it back when I first started covering startups at Bostino and Boston a couple or I guess a handful of years ago at this point, I felt like I kept covering these kids transportation startups. Interesting. All trying to be like the Uber for kids or oh, we'll coordinate the after school rides, which as a kid who had parents in grad school, when I was in elementary school, I definitely understand sort of this struggle firsthand as the kid in this situation. But all of them had since failed. So when I came across the news that Hop, Skip, Drive had raised this Series D round, I was like, oh, I honestly legitimately did not know companies were still trying to tackle this issue. Mm-hmm. So I was intrigued from the start. And reaching out to them, I discovered that it was really interesting that they they had pivoted a few years into operation, into working with schools. Schools started reaching out to them, yeah. seeing that they would be able to sort of fill these transportation gaps that they had where... A lot of different types of students, whether they're in the foster care system or have other situations like that, are required federally to be able to go to the same school regardless of whether they move homes. So if a student gets moved far away from the school, the school's required to have transportation for that oh, wow. student. But sending a 72-person big yellow school bus makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. So hop, skip, drive sort of fills that gap for them. They can do those sort of logistics. They can send someone driving a car to go pick up that student and sort of fill those gaps, which I thought was super interesting because that pivot has allowed them to continue running the consumer side of the business, which I feel most of the other companies who tried to do that failed because there just isn't the business model there to run just that side of the business. Yeah. I mean, beyond the fact that it's such a well-written story, I was happy you explained the pivot because it's been around since 2014 and now it's raising Mm -hmm. a series D. And I don't know, maybe it's because we're mostly covering fintech, uh, at least like on this show these days, but I'm so used to a company which started 2019 raising a series D. So it was just helpful to have an example of like a company that's taking a longer time, but clearly is hitting its stride later through these interesting partnerships. And Marianne, I always thought of you immediately when I was reading it because you have kids, you care about them. So I'm like, <laughs> yes, I so do. Like, what is, is it? Does it make sense to you? I mean, I think it really does. You know, the, the concept when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, wow, you know, this, this is, this is a great concept, but my my first thought was, 
how many parents are going to be comfortable trusting this random new company to pick up their child and take them somewhere? You know, I know there's a need. I see it like in the, our neighborhood with moms putting out on the mom's group. Oh, I need help. Someone picking up my kid. I'll be at work. This and that huge need for it. But I, I feel like where Hop, Skip, Drive really it was able to gain credibility and maybe earn the trust of these consumers was through its partnerships with the schools. It really made it seem like, okay, well, if our school district is partnered with this company, they vetted them. We can feel comfortable. We can feel okay that our children are going to be safe. It takes away a lot of that risk and fear. So that seems like it was, it was a great thing that happened to the company. Uh, good for them. Happy to see them succeeding. Mm-hmm. It's also, they said that working with the schools has actually helped the consumer side of the business. Because yeah. with what you were just saying, it's like parents who maybe already had a kid that fit one of these non-traditional routes that Hopskip Drive allows it's like oh well now if you need someone to take them to soccer practice on thursday it's like well i already trust this company and they get my kid to and from school every day exactly yeah exactly is the goal ever to have the consumer business side of the business overtake the enterprise sides of the business in my head like i imagine I, i don't know which one would make more sense for them to concentrate on or if there is even like a world where it becomes a 50 50 split Yeah, I think they're definitely leaning heavy on the B2B side. Because I definitely thinking of even just like ride sharing like Uber, like an expensive ride, they just get expensive. So it's not always going to be available necessarily, even if the need is there. And I know from talking with them, and there's another company called Zoom that's sort of, they started as an Uber for kids. Yeah, no, yeah. They started as an Uber for kids, moved into the school side as well, and has since gotten rid of the consumer side of the business. Mm -hmm. But based on just chatting with Zoom and Hop, Skip, Drive, it's like these companies are working with a ton of school districts. We're talking tens of thousands of school districts. And like, they're not available in the majority of states yet. Like the problem on the school side is just so big. Like they were saying... Getting kids to and from school, that is the largest mass transit system in the country. Wow. Wow. I mean, I I wonder why, like, maybe it's because the bigger companies in the space don't have enough cash on hand, but I'm like, this feels like a really smart acquisition target. Um, Mm -hmm. But maybe they have bigger ambitions than that. I don't know. No, definitely. And it's interesting because Hopskip Drive actually made an acquisition really early in their life cycle, which I think they help credit to some of their success is they bought one of the consumer companies that shuttered. And the the founder told me, she was like, we were able to sort of learn what worked from what they had gotten through Mm -hmm. and what didn't. And she said that's part of the reason why they think they've been able to stay successful on sort of both sides of the house. Super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I again, I don't think we see the Uber for X model coming up on the show ever. So I am really glad that we had a reason to talk about it. And I'll end with there's like this weird thing in Boston, because I also worked at Boston around when you worked there. And I remember covering more ride-sharing, niche ride-sharing apps. And so mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, I wonder what, what it was about Boston that there was like that surge of interest in building Uber for X's. No, you're so right. I think writing about one of these kids' transportation starts was like the first story I wrote. That's crazy. Bostino. All right, we'll find And it. they were trying to do it with like Land Rovers, driving kids around Newton, Massachusetts with iPads. And I was just like, yeah, I'm sure people there will pay for that. But that seems like a very small market the way they were doing it. They have also gone out of business. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, before we get into our themes of the week, I want to talk about investors and investment funds, which we don't do a ton on the show these days because, I don't know, it's not that exciting when the fund closes a new new fund. So this week I made an exception because I covered Hustle Fund's third fund. It closed $46.1 million in capital commitments. But the real reason it stood out to me was the fact that it's 
co-founders Eric Bond and Elizabeth Yin were talking about how Hustle Fund has been kind of this revenue generating machine and that's helped it keep a lower AUM but still offer the resources of a large firm to its portfolio companies. And actually, I turned to our venture channel and asked both of you and, and the team, like, have we seen a lot of VC firms take the route of trying to generate its own revenue beyond, I guess, like these hopeful future returns? And neither of you really could think of any other examples. Am I right? No, no, we couldn't. Yeah. The one other thing I thought of is I know of a few firms like 776 has like their own internal software system, but I don't think they charge anyone for that. So I don't think they make any revenue off of it. But I am curious to see if like this is something that sparks that. I'm sure a lot of firms have internal things that they could totally monetize that. I'm curious what if you guys think of this could maybe start other firms trying to look to do the same. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not so sure about other firms because I feel like Hustle Fund is really kind of different and stands out from a lot of the venture players that we normally write about. They seem to be very invested. <laughs> not that other firms are not invested, but they like are really hands-on investors and wanting to they're really focused more on uh, quality and not quantity. Like they, they would rather invest, I think, in fewer companies and really, you know, do their due diligence, work with them closely, and rather than just like kind of invest in a whole bunch and hope that one or two works out. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I have to say that because their just investment thesis in general feels so different, I just yeah. don't see a lot of other firms going this direction. I kind of like this. So like just to walk people through some of the basics of how this fund operates, um, I'll start with the fact of like why they are even generating revenue in the first place. They want to keep their funds small. So this fund was $46.1 million, And they said that they're they're hoping to now get to a place where every three years they raise a fund around $50 million because they feel like it's easier to outperform on smaller AUM. But the other side of a smaller AUM is that they don't get enough management fees, which VCs use to pay themselves and work on fun operations. So revenue kind of is like this supplemental income that helps them, again, like how, kind of how I introed this, offer the resources, but still have a smaller pool. And I mean, I just think that's so counterintuitive because up until a few recent examples, my only definition of venture firms growing over time was going from like a 20 million proof of concept to a 50 million second to a 100 million third, and then eventually a $1 billion debut fund for some. Uh, and so it was kind of refreshing to see them want to focus on smaller fund size over time. And Becca, I know you know the hustle fund folks, but you talk to so many emerging fund managers too. Is, is it also rare to you to see people have this like focus on a smaller AUM or are you seeing more of it in your conversations these days? I feel like over the last few years, I have seen more of it. I can only think of a handful of firms. Yeah. So, so it definitely is not like a ginormous trend yet or anything like that. But I know of two funds. I know Canvas Ventures. They're definitely not an emerging manager anymore. Or maybe they're on fund three, but they're sort of graduating out of that category. But they are very intentional about fund size. I don't know, pretty much for the same reason. And also for the sense of just, they don't want to hire a ton more people. So yeah. you can't really deploy a fund that's 50 times larger with the same staff and expect to have the same sort of hands-on experience. So they're, that's their whole reason why they do that, if I remember correctly. And also Bowery Capital in New York okay. is the same way. They have two partners and they just start went from being a solo GP shop to having two GPs for fund three. So they're like, we literally just, it wouldn't make sense to the thesis at all for us to sort of like raise these huge outsized funds each time. 
Yeah. And I think one of the things I found really interesting that their main revenue generator right now is Angel Squad, which they actually just launched, I think it was early last year. Yeah. And I and I had written about it at that time. And like their goal, they, they told me at that time was to build more inclusive investor community, wanting to get more everyday people involved in investing because many people are like, man, I wish I could invest in startups, but I can't write big fat checks to do so. So they really want to make investing more accessible. And I, I love this concept. So they're like... Um, minimum check sizes at that time, I don't know if it's changed, were as little as like $1,000. So someone yeah. could um, go through the program, like they provide what they call an angel education, really walking them through like how to invest, what to look for, all, you know, all of those things, help educating them, and then, you know, giving them an opportunity to invest. So yeah, obviously, it's working, it's working out for them. And I, I think it's I think it's awesome. I love so many things about that. Yeah. Well, the new kind of base metric when I'm writing, when any of us are writing about investment funds is that you need to surprise us. And so this definitely fits that theme. And I want to do a kind of hard pivot into a less fun conversation, but one I think is really important. Marianne, you and Christine wrote a story that was really looking inside the human story of Better.com's layoff spree, including just recent news on more layoffs coming out of them. So I thought you could walk us through some of like the news and then we can get into the more specific stories. Yeah. I've been writing about these layoffs since December of last year. Um, Wow. Yeah, it's been going on that long. And so this company, Digital Mortgage Lender, has had like four known mass layoffs, but they're also apparently uh, doing lots of kind of smaller layoffs that that aren't getting as much like press or notice. And over time, that's happening more often. Apparently, we've I started having people who used to work at the company reach out to me over the past few months. And they're they, well, actually, they've been reaching out to me ever since I started covering them. But all of a sudden, it was like a big flurry of people and they were pissed off and upset and even really felt hurt because like they got laid off, they were getting some of them like two weeks severance, whereas people who got laid off earlier this year were getting like three months severance. And, you know, they're just like, what the hell? I've actually stuck through this with this company through all this ups and downs, negative headlines and all this crazy shit. And now I'm getting less than two weeks uh, of severance. It's like really upsetting. And that's just one of the many reasons that these people were upset. We'll link the timeline in the show notes because I think it's important for people to see really, I mean, the one year anniversary of you covering that story is actually coming up pretty soon, (laughs) which is wild. But there's one stat that I think put it really well into context that you included, which is at its peak late last year, Better had about 10,000 employees. I mean, now it's much closer to 2,400 workers and one employee estimated that it needs to get to 500 employees in order to actually become this like a more stable business. Yeah. I mean, obviously they leaned too heavily into the refinancing when interest rates were super low and we saw a refinancing boom. Things have dramatically changed since then. Interest rates for mortgages are like sky high again. And they just, they bet too much on it, overhired all those things. And, you know, that happened to a lot of different companies over the pandemic boom, right? Better was not alone. I think, again, what, what stood out about Better is just really the the terrible way it handled all of these layoffs. They're very insensitively, really just upset these people. And I have to say, after talking to so many of them, I felt it was really important to get their stories out. And yeah. in the past, like I've written these stories and, and we focus a lot on the employers when we write about layoffs, but I thought we really need to give these employees a voice. Like we really need people to hear what I'm hearing because it's horrific and, you know, it's, it's sad. And, and I'm not saying that like, I want to share bad news, but I really feel like 
people need to know this. Christine and I talked to several different people. We ended up writing like the four individual stories. We didn't write it in their voice, but we wanted to break it out like because they are individuals. They're not, I didn't want to just lump them together as, oh, employees were pissed off because we just wanted to give them an opportunity to tell their stories. And so that's what we did. I think it's so important for, for people to read every story that you include. I think there's there's four of them. But the the common like vibe I got after doing that was that there was like, it did a good job of explaining how employees feel like a back and forth. And something that even though we try our best with a lot of layoff stories, like you said, they focus on employers, they focus on people losing their jobs, but it doesn't ever get into what you guys did this time, which is there's this back and forth of like choosing to stay at a job. What does it mean to ha- to stay at a company that's getting negative press, but mm-hmm. you are on maternity leave or you are, you know, you can't, you don't want to look for a job during like the looming recession. I right. think this did a good job of explaining that it's not as simple as quitting your job. And I think sometimes even as tech reporters, it can be like, this is such a like annoying layoff and who could stay at better.com? And it's like, well, these people, because it's hard to leave your job. And I'm kind of glad that we were reminded of all mm-hmm. of the actual human costs. Right. And, yeah. and one quick thing to say is that a lot of these people started with like huge high hopes, right? The company was doing really well. The CEO is very charismatic. They were kind of, you know, they were really excited when they started. And what I heard from every single one of them was by the time they left, they were just, you know, so disheartened and felt just basically crushed by their experience. Like, it, I, I felt like they were all just traumatized, but I was just going to say, I really liked how the story also talked to some people who were still there. Because mm-hmm. I feel like that part of the conversation gets left out with the layoffs. I mean, if a big chunk of people in your department or a big chunk of people in that you work with day to day get laid off, like that drastically changes the jobs of everyone else who still works at the startup too. I know I have a friend who works at one of the big Boston unicorn companies that recently had layoffs and she now has like four different jobs and oh. she didn't before. And mm-hmm. it's like, it drastically changes those people's careers too. And I know the story about the woman on maternity leave just really struck me as just like, how bad can it get if a company's cutting staff in the way it is for the people who are still there? And it's sometimes hard to remember that it gets really bad sometimes. Yeah. One woman said that while on maternity leave, her paid time off was cut unexpectedly and time that she could be gone was cut unexpectedly. And as a person who's had kids, like I can't even imagine being in that situation. Exactly. There's this weird, like, I don't know how true this is, but I I do think there has been this sort of like rebuttal to layoffs in a weird way where it's like, put your name into a spreadsheet and it's a great time to get hired. Like you're going to get scooped up super fast. But I think it's like, it's, it's just like, it is not easy to look for a job, even if you are like a hotshot engineer, but especially if you're not one. And it's clear Mm -hmm. that like, it's not just impacting, it's impacting people across all levels. I want to end with another example of, of a company having layoffs, which is Instacart and kind of taking a similar tactic to better.com where it's laying off staff kind of in, in rounds. And over time, the information had a scoop last week and, it kind of came to a surprise for me because we've been gassing them up on the show a lot recently of becoming this really like efficient, interesting, experimental company as it prepares to IPO and feeling a lot more stable. So Marion, I know this came as a surprise in the equity channel to see some layoffs coming from Instacart. I mean, it did, but in a way, I, here's the thing. Like, like we said, a lot of companies are probably laying off right now. Um, the fact that Instacart is was a little bit of a surprise. I think the difference though here is, and I don't know, but maybe the way it's being handled is yeah. different. Yeah, maybe. 
I agree. Um, and maybe like, you know, that's why we haven't heard like from 50 million Instacart employees about this, right? You know, there's, there must have been a difference in the way they're always handled or otherwise because people people who've been in these experiences want to to talk about it. That's so true, Marianne. I just want like just to add something like we've seen so many layoff stories. The ones that I get a flurry of tips on versus the ones I don't, I think are so telling. I mean, exactly. people are like, why are we covering it? I think that it's so important to cover. I mean, it's evergreen important to cover a company reacting to tension, in my opinion. But I don't think enough readers know that like we are covering these stories, especially when we get a flurry of tips about mm-hmm. them. It's mm-hmm. not like the journalist trying to like get the company. It's usually something right. was wrong. They were wrong. Exactly. Exactly. And so in the case of Instacart, I, we obviously don't know what went on internally. I do know they've been making a lot of a lot of effort to, you know, to get on a, a really great path looking to IPO. So I mean, may, hopefully it was all done tactfully and and sensitively and and well. But you know, the fact that there was layoffs not not entirely shocking. I think what what you're saying though is maybe the fact that there uh, it's kind of a trend we're seeing is that companies rather than doing mass layoffs are doing these smaller batches of them lately. Yeah, Becca, I'm curious how you feel about that because I feel like it's kind of sneaky, but I I also don't know how normal that is. Like I feel like every company can attribute it to classic churn, and so I'm like I feel mixed about that tactic or if it is a tactic. Yeah. The interesting thing too is a couple months ago I was like chatting with a bunch of firms, venture firms over in Israel about how like we hadn't been hearing like similar signs of a downturn like layoffs and the like from companies in that region. And some of the investors were saying that they just thought it was so odd the way American companies just were like, yep, we just cut this amount of our staff and like very making it about them. And I know we've all seen that video on LinkedIn of that startup founder crying about having to lay off his staff. And he was saying that like a lot of other cultures, like you see this in Europe too, we're not hearing about as many layoffs over at European startups either. Like they're happening, but like they just don't talk about them in the same way that people in the US do. And sort of like the culture here is like very different on talking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Which I found really interesting because reading stories like Marianne and Christine's like, that's really important. But some of the way other CEOs have been talking about it, like they're just like willingly putting themselves out there that, oh, this was all on me and I did X, Y, and Z. It's just like, it's a very weird dynamic. Mm-hmm. I, I want to definitely like, these are all follow-up stories for sure, because so much to come on the layoff front, even though it's getting quieter and louder in different ways. So I think it's a good point, but let's move on to our next section. This is like, I think our more positive section of the show, maybe almost there, but we're going to talk about M&A and Becca, the biggest one of the year happened somewhat recently. And we're starting to see kind of reactions to it play out beyond the first wave of, of Twitter retweets and likes. Definitely. We're obviously talking about Adobe buying Figma Last week, a $20 billion deal. Obviously, if it goes through, this is Adobe's largest acquisition to date. And according to Bloomberg data, most likely the largest private software acquisition of all time. I was just writing a piece about this morning, thinking about like predictions for Q4. And when IPO started to slow down earlier this year, a lot of people thought M&A would pick up both in like good and bad ways. Companies that couldn't raise more funding would get consolidated into companies that were in a better standing, as well as companies just taking it as an opportunity, lower prices, doing some shopping, just kind of keeping um, that momentum going with IPOs, just not being a conversation. So it was interesting when that largely didn't happen throughout this year. And sure, there are a couple instances of M&A. I know I've been sort of tracking closely startups acquiring other startups, yeah, which is also on the rise this year, although we haven't seen any particularly large announcements on that front yet. But I think why we found this interesting 
is sort of what does this deal mean for Q4? And sort of will we start to see more of these M&A transactions in Q4? Have people sort of been thinking about it, but maybe not needing the signal to go ahead? So I'm curious how this will impact this upcoming quarter. Yeah, coincidentally, I just talked to an investor, um, Mark Goldberg from Index Ventures, who was predicting that we will see more consolidation. Um, at least he was referring more specifically to, to fintech. But okay. we were just talking and he was like, yeah, I really think that because in fintech, there there was all these new players coming you know, to market over the past couple of years. And maybe now they're looking at each other like, you know what, rather than competing, let's like join forces and go after this market. And so he he's thinking that we're going to be seeing more of that. I, I do think with the IPO market being what it is that, yeah, logically we would see more M&A. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. Tasha, what do you think? It's, it's like no shade to index or him, but I do feel like people have been saying like FinTech consolidation is coming, EdTech consolidation is coming. Consolidation always makes sense to be coming. And so my like hot take was, or not even hot take, I think just seeing how much it didn't end up happening when everyone said it was, especially this year when companies were supposed to be thinking like and turning inward makes me think that the summer and maybe the spring was a little bit more quiet than we even realized. Like we knew companies were kind of reacting to the downturn, but maybe they were reacting so much so that it was like less, how do we stay afloat? And more like, let's just like pause and exist for a little bit. And now they're starting to be like, can we even think about acquiring? It's kind of like a, a half form thought at this point. But I, I think like when I see how quiet it's been, even though it's what I felt we were building towards, I'm like, maybe people were really just not in a space to even be spending money on either end. And something I think plays into this too is how public is a company going to be if they're looking to get acquired because they're not going to be able to raise more money? Because I know I spoke to a company a few months ago who was saying that one of their competitors had essentially reached out and offered to sell themselves to them because they weren't going to make it otherwise. They were like, we have this very complimentary tech. I think you guys would, would work together really well. And this startup in particular hadn't considered doing an acquisition, but looked at the numbers and were like, actually, this is a great idea. Mm-hmm. So it's like that deal has not been announced, uh, which is why I'm not talking about companies <laughs> by name. But it's like, I think there's a lot more of that happening than many of us realize. And something else that I've noticed that I found super interesting is it seems like of the companies that have started be- to become active with acquisitions, a lot of them are doing so for like organic growth in other markets. Because I know we saw that with Carta acquiring CapDesk in August. They said, essentially, we really just need, why would we go in and build ourselves? There's regulations around what we're doing with equity trading and securities and stuff like that, that why wouldn't we just acquire the company that already has the customers and already has that knowledge and sort of grow in that way? And I'm blanking on the company name, but there was some other company that acquired a European startup last week for the same reason. Huh. So it seems right. like I've, I'm curious, I wasn't even thinking about that, thinking about acquisitions growing this year. I was thinking about that as a catalyst, but I'm curious if it will be. Makes sense. Yeah. I'm interested to see what like ends up happening in Q4. I feel like there's, again, that build up in tension. So maybe we'll see things change. But Becca, I think you make a great point. Like acquisitions are sometimes like put into the same bucket, but there's like the soft landing ones, the experimental ones, the we just want organic growth in a new market ones. And I mean, yeah, I think we're going to see them continue to sit in those different buckets. I wish we knew prices more so we could figure out which bucket they were in. But besides the point, let's end with numbers. A space that I hate talking about because I'm not good at talking about numbers. So, Becca, I'm going to throw to you again and <laughs> ask you to walk us through venture deal pace in Q4. Definitely. No, this has been something super interesting because coming off of the summer, 
all summer, people were saying, oh, X, Y, and Z, they're sitting on their hands, no one's investing right now, but come Labor Day, like, things are going to start to change, which Q4 in the fall in general just historically always been the busiest time of the year for venture deals and venture activity in general. So coming off of Labor Day, just chatting with a few people, I was like, so, like, do we think deal pace is coming back? And people were like, oh, it's surprising me how fast it's coming back, it's coming back fast, it's coming back hard. We're only really seeing an uptick in actual deals getting closed at the seed and series A stage thus far, people were saying, because the conversations around valuations are a lot easier when you don't have four previous rounds, some raised in 2020 and 2021, to have to sort of debate what the company is actually worth. So those deals are really the ones getting over the line right now. But they were the investors I spoke to said, founders are looking to raise at every stage. So even if there's conversations around valuations, and some of these companies are really good companies, solid metrics, maybe have an inflated valuation, but like deserve funding and deserve to kind of continue on with their journey. So those deals are going to have to get done at some point. So it looks like going into Q4, seed and series A are back. And late stage is a little still iffy, I would think at least, and investors kind of agreed with that. But mid stage, B through C's, more series A, that looks poised to really pick up in Q4. I mean, anecdotally, we're seeing this, at least I am, in the pitches that I get. First of all, huge bump in pitches after like Labor Day, you know, went from slow, slow, slow to like, oh my God, my inbox, oh, you know, it was just a crazy difference. Um, Also, a lot of these pitches are smaller deals, you're right. So I'm seeing this play out, you know, like in terms of what we're seeing uh, in terms of pitches and deals closing. And so it all makes sense. Happy hours are back. Like the battery is back. Becca, I think you had a happier every day this week that you had to go to. Oh my God. I did not say yes to that many, but literally Tuesday of last week, there were, I got invited to six and I was just like, I don't know, like in the broader venture reporting like landscape. I just said uh, there are way more people who are better known than I yeah. am. And I'm just dying to know how many invites <laughs> they're getting. If I'm getting six for one day, like that's crazy. You're killing it. But I hear you. I'm like, are we sure that this is all necessary? Just another data point in trying to say that things are like heating up and people kind of woke up. Uh, Kate Clark from The Information had a good story recently about how venture firms are sitting on 290 billion, not million, of dry powder and it's about to kind of unleash. So Love that it's ending with a bang. We needed that, clearly, for 2022. (laughs) Yeah, the dry powder part is kind of what's driving, I think, some of this return to deal activity, too. I was chatting with an investor earlier this week who was saying that, you know, like, you raise record amounts of dry powder and then you don't deploy it, your LPs are paying the same management fees, whether you're deploying Mm -hmm. that capital or not. So you want to come to them at the end of the year and have done nothing after you raised a huge fund, that's going to not look good at all. So he was saying that alone, that fear of looking bad in that way could single-handedly drive some investors back to the market, regardless of how they feel about the current conditions. Pressure and goes back to Hustle Fund too, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's strategy and how it may not feel as pressure to some of these other firms because it's earning money in other ways. I love ending with a full circle moment, Marianne. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) Marianne, Becca, you both are fantastic. Thank you so much. And everyone else, I want to end with two reminders for discount codes. One that I already mentioned is use code equity for disrupt tickets. But also if you were laid off this year and have been impacted by kind of this big workforce reduction, TechCrunch is offering a free expo pass for disrupt. So there's no strings attached. Tickets get you access to the expo floor, breakout sessions, and plenty of networking opportunities. So we'll link it in the show notes please take advantage of it. I mean, I'm really happy we're doing it. And everyone else, we will chat with you on Monday. 
Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas, editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch senior reporter, Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.